I don't know if anyone saw during the meditation, someone popped in uh, with the name You Are Zen. It, felt, it seemed apt, given the, given the theme of that lightly guided meditation of trusting the upright body and trusting attention. Yeah, you are, you are where Zen happens. So, um, this is what I intend to be the second in a, uh, a series of talks called the Foundations of Dharma for Young Urban Zen. And part of the inspiration for a series of talks like this is that when you look at, um, when you look at the Zen literature, say you go to the koans, right? Blue Cliff Record, Book of Serenity, you start pouring through them and there's all this, there's all this happening and you don't see a whole lot of mention of the Dharma or like the, the classical Dharma. You don't see it called by its name, right? So you might get the idea, oh, that wasn't important to these, these practitioners. Um, when if you scratch the surface a little bit, what you find is uh, the um, Zen Master Dogen, for example, by the time he was like 12 or 14, had read the entire canon, like all the teachings he could get his hands on by the time he was a, he was a teenager. Uh, he's, he's one example, but from what I understand, um, knowing, knowing the foundations of the Dharma, it provided these sort of iconoclastic practitioners with the vocabulary to do revolutionary practice. So it gave them the building blocks uh, to do some pretty remarkable things with their consciousness and with their lives. So um, classical Dharma, it's important. So we started at the beginning, First Noble Truth. Um, you would not have had to have heard the talk last time to follow along. This one will be sort of self-contained. Um, but just to summarize the First Noble Truth, as we were talking about it last time, is uh, suffering and stress, the Pali word dukkha, that represents this whole spectrum of stresses and sufferings in life from the, the grossest grief to the most subtle unsatisfactoriness that's folded into the processes of perception. It covers the whole range. And the, the task or the imperative um, of the first noble truth is understanding, comprehension to know it. So we were just practicing the First Noble Truth while we meditated with our clear attention. And we were also already practicing the Second Noble Truth, though we hadn't talked about it, in releasing. The task of the Second Noble Truth is to let go. So the First Noble Truth is Dukkha. The Second Noble Truth is its arising. The arising of dukkha, and more particularly that dukkha, suffering, stress, unsatisfactoriness, arises based upon conditions. Doesn't sound so revolutionary, but it, it provides the key to make practice possible, freedom possible, and change possible. If there were no cause for dukkha, if there were no um, conditions that held it in place, then those couldn't be dismantled and Dukkha couldn't, couldn't release. We'll get more into that conditionality. That's the, 
maybe one of the main themes I want to touch on tonight. So something, something of a, an additional frame, something we haven't done before that I want to try tonight, is that because, because this understanding I'm going to talk about of the Second Noble Truth is so tied to meditation practice, reflection and release in the, in the context of meditation, I actually want us to practice it from time to time while we're doing the, while we're, we're listening and uh, doing this talk. So from time to time, we'll actually pause, re-enter meditation, notice any stress that has accumulated in the body, in the mind, and just take a moment to release it. And we might do that for 20 seconds, and then we'll, we'll go back, go back into things. But the meditative frame is an important one for studying the Four Noble Truths. To help us start getting a, getting a sense of the conditional nature of dukkha, I'm going to use a really tasty, mundane example. And um, it is in, it, the example is impulse buying at the grocery store. They've got all those nice sparkly racks with the shiny wrappers, the chocolates, the candies. They're right there. You've already been in purchase mode. You've got your basket full of groceries or your two things that you're, you're buying. You're there waiting. They have you there waiting, contending with craving. It's pretty crafty, isn't it? Contending with craving. And I feel especially confident that every one of us has felt the push, felt the urge, like, oh, look at that. At least a little. And then I feel completely confident that we've released that impulse at least once. No, I'm not going to buy the chocolate today. That is the practice on a mundane level of the second noble truth. Practice of the first noble truth, seeing the arising of that desire. And coming along with the feeling of, uh, if you're tuned into it, physical contraction, mental contraction. the wanting, and releasing it, first and second noble truth, seeing it, releasing it. I was looking up some, um, some, of the, some of the texts that talk about the Four Noble Truths, and I spend a lot of time in this old set of books called the Pali Canon, but I was interested in looking up some of the others, and I looked up uh, the Chinese parallel of the most famous discourse. And it uses a different word that I think is kind of evocative. Instead of, instead of the second noble truth is the origination or the arising of suffering, and the task is to abandon it, they said the second noble truth is the accumulation of suffering. I don't know if that rings any bells for you, but it's sort of, it sort of hinted at it in a different way for me. And that the task, rather than abandoning, is more dramatic. The word they use is sever. And I can think of 
being there with the urge to like re reach out for the chocolate wrapper and then noticing the desire and cutting it off right there. Um, I like to be careful with that sort of imagery, but uh, given the, the ephemeral nature of craving, it feels okay. So just a word about uh, the abandoning, the task of the second noble truth. Um, this can sometimes evoke sort of um, personal ideas about, about abandoning, like, oh, I don't want to be abandoned. It's the other meaning of abandoning. The idea is uh, abandon ship. Like you, like this ship is going down. It's not going to end well for any of us. Let's get on a lifeboat, the lifeboat of mindfulness. Concentration, renunciation, giving. The sinking ship of desire. Our task is to abandon that sinking ship. So another image to, that will, I hope, help me emphasize the conditioned nature of the arising of dukkha uh, is a matchbook, a set of matches. When you light a match, as we've all done, uh, open the book, press the match next to the, the rough striker and pull. In order for that flame to arise, you need the pressure, you need the friction, you need the fuel of the sulfur on the end of the match, and then you need the match itself in order for that flame to arise. The flame, in this sense, illustrates for us, it's not monocausal. It doesn't have just one cause. So too with suffering, it doesn't have just one cause. But it's got this, this um, web of conditions, just like the match. Not only does it have a web of conditions, it also has a, has a number of options. Let's take the match again. You can douse it in water, you can blow it out, you can throw it in the dirt, um, or if we're practicing in zazen, you can hold it upright. And maybe the flame won't have enough grip on the fuel and it will go out without you needing to do anything. Just to be upright and still and aware. And the flame lets go of its fuel. So this, um, this teaching of conditionality, so important, so important when it comes to um, understanding the Dharma, practicing the Dharma. Um, the, I think the, the later Zen teachings have so much to do with conditionality. Bhikkhu Bodhi, the well-known uh, Buddhist monk, scholar, translator. Um, he, puts, he puts conditionality's importance this way. He says, it's the, it's the whole frame behind the Four Noble Truths. It's the key to the perspective of the middle way. It's the conduit to the realization of selflessness. It's the underlying theme running through the teachings, many expressions. The frame behind the Four Noble Truths, the key to the middle way, the conduit to selflessness, and the unifying theme in many expressions. 
And I find this to be true the more that I, the more that I study, the more that I practice, and the more that I look at these teachings. And I, wonder, I wonder how that will be for you. Um, there are two aspects to conditionality. Dependent arising, dependent origination is the, the more, common, more commonly used term. Um, two aspects to dependent arising. There's the, the principle of conditionality itself, dependent on this, that arises. With the cessation of this, this ceases. With the arising of this, this arises. Conditionality. Again, that there's no one cause is an important inference. And then this principle's application to dukkha itself is, is what allowed the Buddha to realize an end of suffering and then teach the path. So, to illustrate, the way the, the way the stories come to us, the Buddha has set out on his training, or the Buddha has set out on his search to bring an end to suffering. He's coming, he's, uh, after being very protected from anything, anything difficult in his life, in his young life, after meeting with great success, all the pleasures you could imagine, renounces that life when he comes into contact with aging, illness, the promise of mortality, death, and seeing the inspiration of a monastic who seems to be at peace with the reality of this life. So he's on the search. Some amount of time has elapsed. The Buddha in meditation is reflecting. Dukkha arises from a cause. What is the condition? What's the condition that gives rise to Dukkha? The second noble truth. And he traces it back. Oh, Dukkha depends on birth. If there were not birth, Dukkha would not arise. There must be a condition for birth. What's the condition for birth? Oh, the condition for birth is becoming. We'll talk more about becoming in a minute. But taking up an identity. What's the condition for becoming? It cannot arise without a condition. Clinging. Craving. Tracing it back. Craving arises dependent upon pleasant and unpleasant sensation which arises dependent upon sense contact. So the dukkha, the, the Buddha traces the arising of dukkha all the way back to our, to, um, traces the web of conditions, the web of influences, all the way back to the sense contact, the sense doors that we all experience all the time. And that's exactly where we practice. So we practice with the experience of the eye and sights experience of the ears, experience of the nose, and why. We focus on these things because wisely related to, they incline us toward freedom. Unwisely related to, they incline us toward suffering.
one of the beauties of, of turning your attention toward conditionality is that it holds, a, it holds a key to the release of suffering. One of the aspects of this is that you can recognize at any point that this is happening. You can see at the point of sense contact, oh, I see chocolate. My mind may incline toward craving. Or you can catch it at craving and clinging. Haven't yet made a, haven't yet fallen into suffering, but craving and clinging are arising. You have all of these different moments to recognize and abandon. To flesh out the, the, the analogy just a little bit more to, to, to illustrate these different factors from sense contact up to becoming and the arising of suffering. We're back, we're back in the grocery. When you see, when you see the, the object of desire, you feel the impulse arise, that pull or push is, uh, is one of the conditions of dependent arising we call feeling tone. It's based upon this, that your craving arises. Um, and once, once craving and clinging really get going, then things can totally tip over. Then you're making plans. Ah, I will, uh, I will buy this chocolate, I will have it, I will have it, uh, I'll eat this entire bar before 9 p.m. It will happen tonight. And you visualize yourself there, and as one of my friends playfully puts it, you're starring in your head movie that's conditioned upon craving. You have become, you've taken up an identity based on that craving. You can recognize this process at any point and come back into stillness and just release. It's just pausing now for a moment. Noticing any accumulations of tensions or stresses in the body and mind. And letting go. Any time. You can let go. It's because we keep taking pleasure in, the, in these choices we, that we keep making them. It's not by, a, not by a fault, not a personal flaw. It's actually pleasant. There's pleasure associated at some point in the process with what leads us toward dukkha. It's arising is conditioned upon our pleasure. That's fascinating to hold. What that means for me is that it takes a, it takes a, a keen level of discernment. There's this, um, there's this story in the canon where uh, Venerable Ananda, who was a Buddha's attendant for a long while, um, he's gone on alms round and he sees he sees these children 
shooting arrows at a target. It's archery practice. And he, Ananda is so impressed because these children, they must be less than 10. And they're just shooting bullseye, 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 bullseye. He says, wow, these children must be very well-trained, well-trained archers. So he finishes his alms round, he goes back, he reports to the Buddha, he says, oh, I saw this. They must be really, really well-trained. The Buddha says, yeah, it takes a lot of skill to hit bullseye after bullseye after bullseye, but what do you think? Does it take more skill to hit bullseye after bullseye, or to hit the arrow once, and then to split that arrow in half with the second arrow? What do you think is more difficult? Oh, obviously to split the second arrow. Split the arrow with the second arrow. That would be amazing. And then the Buddha says, even, even more difficult than that, even more precise than that, seeing this is suffering. This is the arising of suffering. This is the ending of suffering. And this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So it's no, it's no surprise to me that there's pleasure there's pleasure associated with our dukkha, with the choices that lead us into dukkha. It's not an easy thing to parse, but it's worth, it's worth the effort. The, um, the, the texts say that when, um, to illustrate the benefit of having realized deeply the Four Noble Truths, the, the Buddha stops and he picks up a little bit of dirt under his fingernail and he goes, monks, What's more, the dirt under my fingernail than the, the dirt in the great mountain? Uh, obviously, the dirt in the great mountain. He says, all of uh, all the suffering that's left for one who realizes the Four Noble Truths is this little bit of dirt under my finger compared to what has been destroyed, the whole great mountain. I find that reassuring, kind of confidence-boosting. I hope it works. I hope it works for all of us. The, I want to talk about a little bit what it, what it might look like when it's working, when the practice of observing dukkha and its arising is working, and some of what the pitfalls are in our last few minutes. So when it's working, I think this is characterized by lightness, ease, mental, physical, uh, and resilience. And when, that, when, when the mind and the heart recognize a lightness and an ease, where there was once greed, craving, aversion, that is confidence building. That is the fuel for the path. Some of the ways it might not go well when we understand that dukkha arises based on conditions. Some of the pitfalls, three varieties that uh, are shaped after the three varieties of craving. The first is clinging to an identity. For example, I am the one, I am the one who doesn't fall for craving. I, I understand craving now. This will never happen to me. I am more or, le more or less, I'm too good for this now. Thank you very much. Buddhist practice, check. Um, having an identity 
formed in that sense. Bhavatanaha, craving for becoming, craving for an identity like so. Second pitfall, the craving for an identity that's not X, Y, and Z. This may show up as running away from conditions. It may show up as a heavy measure of self-judgment. Like, oh, these things are arising, that's not me. I'm not going to have that in my life. And then the third is a sort of indulging in the cravings that arise with the idea that cause won't have an effect. So, but by way of um, a little bit of humor, um, I'm going to share an example from uh, when I was living at a meditation center. Uh, an example to illustrate the sort of like, I'm doing my best, and man, I'm not, I don't have this perfected. Um, I'm living at this meditation center, um, and while I'm living there, the community is really supportive of meditation. So maybe we're meditating four and a half hours a day-ish, something like that. And during the meditation, very meticulous, watching for the arising of dukkha, watching for its release. Just release, release, over and over again, practicing the second, second noble truth. And pretty amazing. I would spend all that time in meditation being so careful don't cling, not clinging, don't cling, not clinging. And then um, I'm working in the kitchen. It's meal time. Serve the meal. And I'm about to leave. So regularly, it was like, okay, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overeat like a quarter of a bowl. I'm going to have two cups too much salad, and I'm going to have some granola, and I'm going to have X, Y, and Z. I'm just like... Craving is coming at me on all sides, and food was the, the medium while I was there, right? That I, would, that I would spend these four hours, like, meticulous. I'm not going to crave. I'm not going to fall for it. I see how it hurts. And then I'm in the kitchen, and it's just like, oh, got me. Got me again. Um, and I remember there being a day... I, just one. And it wasn't like this was, this, was, this was one and done forever. I remember there being a day where I recognized, oh, this is what's going on here. I'm being meticulous on, on the meditation cushion, and the, the understanding and release of craving doesn't stop when I stand up. The requests of practice don't stop when I stand up, and it's happening right here. My practice right here in the kitchen. It's this moment. This is where the practice is happening. And when I saw that, I, I got away from the temptation. I walked out of the kitchen and was like, oh, I'll go for a walk before it gets me. <laughs> it doesn't have to be pretty. Uh, you know. A month ago, during the one day sitting, um, Linda Ruth Cutts, a senior Dharma teacher, told this story about she was having a meeting with, with her teacher, and she said, whenever I look in the mirror, all I see 
All I see is how hurtful and mean I am. Whenever I look in the mirror, that's what I see. And his advice, stop looking in the mirror. I was like, it took me a while to get into that, get into that advice. But as it pertains to the Four Noble Truths, taking one condition out of that particular brand of suffering, that one form of suffering for her, at that time, could be undermined by just removing that one condition. Okay, stop looking in the mirror. And then as the wholesome qualities of the heart, positive self-regard start to grow for her, I suspect now she looks in the mirror and sees herself on Zoom and feels, feels reasonably well about it. So something that I want to emphasize to close is the, when I was looking in the texts, looking at, um, looking at the, there's a chapter in this book called The Connected Discourses, and it's the chapter on the truth, the chapter on Satcha Samyutta, 56 teachings. And it, it's within that chapter that the, uh, the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma takes place. But it's also f 56 teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And 51 of them said, such and such and such is the teaching, and ended with this phrase, that is why you should make an effort in meditation to see right here, this is dukkha. This is the arising of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. And this is the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. So just emphasized 50, 51 out of 56 times, studying the Four Noble Truths in the realm of meditation. And then obviously it can apply in the rest of our lives. And then as I said before, the mind, the heart, that has seen in itself dukkha, and then the absence of that dukkha, generates so much faith. Just as suffering has a condition to rising, so too does liberation. And that trust and confidence in the practice is conditions the arising of joy, rapture, happiness, in turn conditioning concentration, in turn conditioning knowing and seeing things as they have come to be, in turn conditioning the thoroughgoing letting go of liberation. May it be so. May it be so.